a great idea, you can even have the funding for it. Mm. But you need to leave room in the execution of that model to have that variance, the human condition variance. Hmm. Um, you can do all, you can pull all the data, you can interpret all the data, you can look at all the comps, you can see all this stuff. And I will tell you, like, you can, you got to go with your gut. You've got to do gut checks all the time and you got to leave a little room for something to happen. And I don't mean be negative, like, it won't work that way. So let's pad. It's more like something amazing could happen in that little space that you leave for magic to happen. Hey everyone, this is Devin Miller here with another episode of The Inventive Journey. I'm your host, Devin Miller, the serial entrepreneur that has grown several businesses to seven figure companies, as well as the founder and CEO of Miller IP Law, where he helps startups and small businesses with their patents and trademarks. And if you ever need help with yours, just go to strategymeeting.com and uh, grab some time with us to chat. Now, today we have another great guest on the podcast, and they're all great, so I always say the, another great guest, but I always mean it, um, which is Sheila, and I'm still going to, I'm worried I'm going to pronounce the last name, uh, Andrine, Adrian. Andrine, my Andrine. mom says Andrine, but it's Andrine. <laughs> Andrine, all right, I did my best attempt, and I even asked her before the podcast, because I try to get the names right, and I still usually slaughter her, but that was my best attempt, so... So as a quick introduction to, to Sheila, um, so she went to uh, NYU and got, a, I think, studied some poli-sci, um, wanted to be an attorney at one point, and then met a director. He uh, convinced her that you can make more in uh, get, doing commercials and doing videos and whatnot than you're ever going to make as an attorney. Decided to leave the career, or leave the that career uh, in college, went and worked and did uh, commercials. Um, started to, I think, uh, was dating or otherwise a director, wanted to marry, uh, kind of freaked out, didn't, that wasn't where you wanted to go, moved to L.A., um, created or did uh, more jo- uh, creative jobs in L.A. for a period of time, and then realized that a lot of the films never got picked up. And so with that, kind of saw an opportunity is to hang out, hang out or shingle, so to speak, on helping fa- or films get found, so to speak, and having that impact. And then she's kind of continued to develop her career from there. So with that much as a uh, introduction, welcome on the podcast, Sheila. Oh, thanks for having me, Devin. So I gave kind of the 30 second quick high level overview, but let's take us back in time a little bit. Tell us a bit about going to NYU studying poli sci and kind of how your life changed from there. Yeah. um, Great, great recap, by the way. Um, So I just remember sitting in, you know, in the classroom, looking out the window at the, you know, not the campus, but just in New York City. And I honestly, I was distracted and bored. I worked three jobs, putting myself through school. I really wanted to be a litigator. I love the law. And it wasn't necessarily my, the director I started um, dating saying, you'll make more money in film, because by the way, you don't in film, unless you are like the nano 1%. But um, I helped him out on a commercial and ended up making $800 a day. And the food was amazing. And it was, I'd never done anything like that before. And I had so much fun that I actually chose to to leave school and do this for a while, save up some money thinking I might go back. And I never did go back. It just kept mm. leaving more things. So, so now, so you, so you made, first of all, you made this with $800 a day is, is, a, is a pay is, is pretty good. If you could sustain that for, for indefinitely, if you could just continue to find those commercials, that would yeah. be, you know, a pretty decent pay. So, but, so you, you decided, Hey, okay. So initially, and, and with a lot of things just kind of start out as this will be a, a temp, you know, a temporary thing. We'll 
do it for a little while, make some money or get some pay. And then we'll, you know, go back to school and never, or life always takes us in different directions. So you said, okay, I like this. This is fun and enjoyable. Did that for a period of time. And then it sounded like, you know, you, or romantic relationships, or at least at least on one side, started to develop as in addition to career. But you decided that wasn't the direction you wanted to go, so you moved out, um, moved from where you're at in NYU to or New York to LA. Is that right? Well, my mom was in LA, and uh, my boyfriend at the time had asked me to marry him, and I was kind of like, no, I'm I'm 20, <laughs> not even 21, right? And not ready yet. So I ended up uh, leaving there to go visit my mom. We'd moved to LA and I got a job mm-hmm. doing a low budget movie out of the trunk of my car, which led to me doing other gigs there and using my sort of style, styling background uh, to move into costume design. And the first gig I got was the Wonder Years TV show. And then I did Party of Five, Dawson's Creek, Smallville, Jack and Jill, and kind of went on to do some really great TV shows as a costume designer. I got even nominated for an Emmy on the Wonder Years. I didn't even know what an Emmy was. I was like, oh, okay. Um, and went to the Emmys. Didn't win though, um, but I did go. And, you know, during my hiatus, I, I was great. I'm grateful too, because I worked on successful shows. So I would work nine months out of the year and have three months off. And then during those three months, I would make a short film or a feature film that I would direct or produce. And then I started going to the festival circuit. And in the film festival circuit, I started to meet other filmmakers. I started to learn how the film industry worked and um, got out of my bubble of being just in the studio system. Mm. So um, that was quite an education. And I became really passionate about that community because unlike when you go down to the theater downtown and you watch a movie pre-COVID, nobody Mm. talks to each other. When you go to a film festival, you're talking to people that you for some reason, same environment, but a completely different experience. You're connecting with total strangers over content and telling stories. Hmm. No, and that, you know, that, that sounds exciting. No one question you had, I had kind of as you were chatting through that, because you kind of, you know, one thing we talked is you, you found out about underprivileged films, right? Or whatever you want to call them under, and you know, a lot of films get made very, or only a small fraction of them that them get actually picked yeah. up or go anywhere. But, you know, kind of as you're in that environment, how many films do get picked up? I mean, the only thing I only thing I know about movies is when a new movie comes out in the film and it looks good, I go watch it. And I love watching movies. But how many movies don't get picked up? So I don't know what the stats are today because of the thousands of streaming services out there. But back in those days, um, roughly and this was before you could make a movie. This was right before you could make a movie on your iPhone. But there was about 60 to 70,000 films made every year in the world and less than 1% were picked out. Wow. Uh, Hollywood only has so much bandwidth, right? And, mm-hmm. but even still like they, there was a sort of an industry thing that I think a lot of filmmakers didn't realize is that filmmakers want to have their films go to all these festivals and get all these laurels and accolades and have it in front of a live audience. They want people to see it. They spend their time and money to go there. They answer questions. Um, rarely do they make any money in the festival circuit. It's usually you spend money. It's like a form of marketing. It's kind of a lost mm. leader. It's like a version of a theatrical in a way. Mm. The industry actually looks at that. And in the beginning, there's a handful of festivals you can do and win awards, and get some reviews. That's good. There's a tipping point. When you start to do too many festivals, Hollywood starts to think you've been exploited already. You've already been seen by too many. I'm not going to pick you up mm. because you know, somebody else would have picked you up by now if you were that good. Um, Mm. 
but you almost become damaged goods. Now, today's world with all the streaming opportunities, you can go to a whole bunch of film festivals and then go onto a streaming service and no one's going to think you're damaged goods. But um, I sort of went off on a tangent, but. No, but let me add and one question I had, because so you're saying really only 1% make it to big mainstream. Some of them go to film festivals. Yep. A lot of them really just don't go anywhere. Yep. But, you know, and I, again, I'm a bit ignorant, so or, uh, excuse my question, but, you know, is that, you know, I you see with the big movies, you know, Avengers or whatever one it is, they spend hundreds and millions of dollars to produce those movies. Are the ones that don't get picked up usually the lower budget ones, or is that some of them that are still high budget ones, or kind of what is that dynamic? And it's really just a personal question or a personal interest question, but I was just curious. Well, I think we have to break it into two parts. One is there's Hollywood makes their movies and they are already like marketing it while they're making it. And then they mm -hmm. spend probably sometimes more money than it costs to make. They spend in P&A to get it out into the world so that they can get that initial box office, which will then in the old days, it actually did sort of up the ancillary rights where you could, you know, on all the other windows mm -hmm. nowadays, you know, a plus. So that's a Hollywood movie. Now, then there's the film festival movies, which are made for far less money that a film that Hollywood can come in and pluck, purchase. And we hear about some of those deals at Sundance, which, by the way, I think today is day two of Sundance. Right. So it's good that you're talking to an independent filmmaker. Um, hey, and Sundance yeah. is in Utah, so all the better. And I've actually, I haven't gone to Sundance, but I've been to the same resort that they hold Sundance at. So anyway, yeah. small world. So, uh, although it's not there this year, but. Um, oh, I, oh, I didn't even know. See, I, I don't keep track as much as I should. It's okay. It's virtual this year. And I think they have a pretty amazing platform. It's cool. a lot more interactive so that they built themselves is from what hmm. I hear. But so you can also, you know, Hollywood will come in and pluck a, an independent filmmaker out, sorry, and give a filmmaker an opportunity and put them on some of the now mainstreamers. Hmm. Um, let's just talk the world of COVID right now, because we're not doing theatrical screenings in any effective way. Mm -hmm. um, so there's, you're, okay, I know I got lost on the question. What was the question? I think that, no, I think it answers it. So there's a few different types of films, ones that are big blockbusters. They make it, they promote it themselves. Oh, yeah. Some of them get picked up just because they do well enough or it's interesting enough for the film, the theaters or streaming services now think that they can make a go of it. And then the vast majority yeah. don't. I think the original question I had is just, you know, are these a lot of inexpensive or low budget film or movies or is it people dump a lot of money into these films and they never go anywhere and it's you know it's a, a bigger gamble or a, big, a bigger risk i think that was the original question it's, it's a it's a it's a big gamble right like even hollywood mm. movies like look at the lone ranger right like they spent um i don't know half a billion dollars making that movie and then they had to spend another half a billion dollars marketing it and it was a total turd and nobody watched it right and then there are films that like the film festivals, especially the markets, where a film might've been made for a couple hundred thousand dollars. And then, you know, Amazon or Netflix comes in and buys it for seven or $8 million and mm. releases it. And they take the rights for three years, right? Pay the filmmaker mm -hmm. every eight weeks or something or every quarter. So um, there's lots of different scenarios, but I think in, nowadays it's about great quality content, great mm -hmm. stories. And I don't think it matters as much what the budget is. If you're no, a great I, I agree. There's, there's a my myself, my my wife and myself love to watch movies. It's always fun. We have a great time, and we 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 watch we consume lots of movies for most of what we do for date nights. 
Um, but with that, so now, so you kind of had this realization, you know, you've been working in LA, circling back to now your journey just a bit, but working in LA, you know, you get to see the ins and the outs, you get a, a great experience, you get nominated for an Emmy, you can do all, go through all of those things or an Emmy or Grammy, I, I forget which one it was. Um, yeah. And, you know, you, you have that thing and then you, you've kind of come to this realization that you have a lot of films now that we've chatted a bit about them that don't get picked up for a myriad of reasons, whether it's they don't have a PR strategy, they don't, you know, people don't watch them, they can't, you know, whatever it is. And some of them are great films. And so how did you then kind of with that realization start to form a business around it or form a company around it? Well, the first thing I noticed in getting to really be part of the festival circuit is how many films are not picked up and how many great ones, right? Where people mm. mortgage their homes in order to make these movies and they are sweet and they are deep and they are, you connect with them and they even many times have, you know, stars in them and yet they didn't get picked up. Mm. And so I thought, why don't, I should start kind of naively, my producing partner, Carlo and I decided let's start Indie Flicks, which will be a marketplace for filmmakers to come. It'll be non-exclusive. They can put it up there. We will we will assume the cost of getting it live and making it there. This was pre-streaming. So this was DVD on demand. When mm. streaming came in, we pivoted and started to stream content, which was obviously much more affordable for us. But it was interesting, the journey with that. Um, these, you know, when you start a company, you go in with these this great idea, right? Because it's fulfilling a need. And then you realize, oh, there's this whole other component that nobody told me about, and that's the human condition, right? And when you are going in to help solve something, no, people are resistant to change. It's unfamiliar. They don't always trust it. So the biggest thing was filmmakers were saying, well, I don't get it. It's non-exclusive. I can put it up there. It's the opposite of Hollywood. Mm. First of all, I don't trust you. You're not a distributor. You've never done this before, so I, I can't believe that. And so the few that I could convince to come onto the platform were basically like, Okay, so I still own my rights. I can take it down anytime I want. You've just paid to put me up there and you're going to deliver and you're going to be transparent in your accounting and you're going to pay me my sh my portion. We're going to ref share. And I'm like, yep. And so then when they finally put it up there, they're like, okay, where's my money? And it's like, well, have you been letting people know it's there so that they can buy it? Because we're providing everything you else you need and we're letting people know it's there, but you need to market to your audience. You know who that audience is because mm -hmm. you made this movie, you've been to the For festival. Them, yeah. You raise the money, like, you know, and they were like, I'm not a marketeer, I'm a storyteller. So I'm like, I, okay, I, I remember being in that space. And then, mm. you know, then you got the other people who were like, because we were so early with streaming that they were like, I'm not going to put my credit card online. That just doesn't feel right. And it's like, but you do when you buy a plane ticket <laughs> you do for DVD. Like, I don't understand. Right. So it was just getting people to do that. And then people were like, I don't want anybody watching my movie on an iPhone. Right everyone that whole controversy like oh you can't watch mission you know like a big beautiful movie on an iphone mm. that's just terrible you have to watch it in a theater on a big screen and so there was that whole conversation and then like the world economy went into the toilet in 2008 or seven and you know mm. it's just like watching the world do its thing and knowing that filmmakers are people and they mm. need mothers and managers and so like you can create this wonderful platform that is actually like you, it's a little hard to believe it exists, but it does. So just getting them to actually trust it and to participate in it and then coaching them to say, but you do know how to market because you mm. raised money and you got into festivals and you got peep butts in seats and you like, and then encouraging them to do that. And it was just like, wow, like this is, 
And then of course, the other side is we grew so much that we had over 12,000 titles with worldwide rights and we streamed globally and we were content from 85 countries. And I had so many filmmakers that my whole time was spent talking to them. And they're like, I've been up there for three months and I haven't seen any money. I'm like, well, are you marketing it? Are you doing this? Well, mm. you need to help me. So then that was my world. And I'm a filmmaker. And I thought I'll just hang a shingle naively and empower filmmakers. And we'll all be in this together. and We'll learn from each other. And I ended up in a role that wasn't what I expected. Mm. And so today I now make content and distribute and create tools. We learn from each other, we share, and it's, well, it's just way better now. So, but it took years to get there. No, and I, and I think that's, you know, but that's a, a lot of the plight sometimes of an entrepreneur, right? You have a great idea. First of all, you have to figure out how to implement that idea. But even once you do that, it's now creating the market or convincing the market that there's a need for it. And then once the market's convinced, it's, you know, how do we now operationally launch this, get it going and get people that are willing to pay for it. They're willing to, you know, do something about it and they're willing to use it. And, you know, that's, that's both the fun of it, the stress, the frustration all wrapped in one. So now as you've, you know, had that realization, got things going, started to work on, and I think that you also shifted, we chatted a bit more about, um, you know, do, moving to kind of social impact films, a bit more offline into the communities, screening events and everything else, or otherwise kind of looking for the community impact, and that's kind of where you focus the core. But now looking towards the future, kind of where do you see the next six, and I I, I know that the film industry in particular is a bit unknown between COVID and theaters doing down, going virtual, streaming platforms, with all that in mind, kind of where do you see the next six to 12 months going for you? Well, so pre-COVID, so there's two parts of our business. One is the streaming side of the business. And then like you mentioned, the social impact side, I decided to go back to, to you know my own filmmaking roots and I got involved in social impact films, which instead of, I realized I got sent this one film, it was about, it was called Finding Kind. It's about girl bullying. And I watched it in my living room as a rough cut. They were looking for some finishing funds. And I watched it. And the first thing I felt was I wanted to talk to somebody. And I didn't have anyone to talk to. And I'd been bull so bullied as a kid that it mm. just brought up so much for me. And I thought, wow. So we ended up bringing in some finishing funds. And instead, I said, can we just take it to schools to mm. watch in schools and not put it online right now? Mm. And let's just do that for a little while, kind of like our version of a theatrical and then we'll put it online because we'll do that to just raise awareness. And we took it up to my daughter's school and screened it for the sixth and seventh graders. And it was so powerful that before we could even think about ways to go to other schools, they were already calling us. Mm. And that started this whole other side of the business where, and I will tell you, my stakeholders were scratching their heads. They're like, you're the CEO of a global streaming service and you're putting energy into little school screenings, which was like, yeah, I know, but there's this really strong demand. So now cut to, you know, now we do, you know, 10,000 school screenings for a particular mm. film across 90 countries. So it has just ballooned into a whole nother arm of the business that is purely offline. But then let's cut to March when COVID hit and mm. we pivoted. And now instead of sending out a link where they would basically use their venue and put their butts in seats and license our content to have a conversation, whether it was about anxiety or bullying or empowerment or equality. now they come to our platform, we do virtual community screenings and we can house anywhere from like 30 people to 10,000 people in mm -hmm. one event. And then we're now getting them to cross over into the streaming side of the business where they can access 4,500 more titles of content for a purpose. So I went in, I 
let go, you know, two thirds of our library because I really wanted to focus on being a platform of content for a purpose, content for good, bring us mm. together, build community with content and to learn about the story behind the story. No, and I think that's cool. And I think that's a, certainly an exciting direction to go and something that, you know, is, can be impactful and, and you know, have, be rewarding in and of itself. Well, now as we've kind of chatted through your journey, it's always a good transition. I always have two questions I ask towards the end of the podcast. We'll jump to those now. So the first question I always ask is along your journey, what was the worst business decision you ever made and what did you learn from it? So the worst, I actually have two. All right, Um, go ahead. One is I hired the person with the best resume, but they didn't quite I didn't quite connect with them. I just, I had done so much on my own with my, you know, I'm an NYU dropout. I don't have a marketing degree. I don't have a business degree. So I did so much on my own. I kind of discounted my own sort of knowledge and wisdom and insight and experience of growing the business on my own with advisors and and people Mm -hmm. involved. And I thought I need to bring someone in who can really help me take that business to the next level. And instead of hiring someone that I just completely connected with, I hired a person or people I've done it multiple times. And I've now really learned my lesson who just had the resume, right? Mm. Like they had done this before they were big time. They did it in their sleep. They were a phone call away from something. And I just thought, great, this is the silver bullet. And it was Mm. disastrous each time because it's, they either needed too many people, too many meetings, a whole bunch of money to implement. They didn't move fast enough. They came from massive organizations. And while that sort of like that person and that title being in this tiny little company looked like something, I realized, you know, they didn't have the same ammunition, the same tools that they had become accustomed to, to, you know, operate so beautifully in that world. They couldn't re, they couldn't replicate that in our small world. So um, I, I really now stick with my gut. I go with the person with, yes, the skill set, but mostly that I connect with, like that we get each other because you're going to be like married to this person. The other thing I would say, a bad business decision, which is really more of a personal thing is hmm. I used to, when I was fundraising, I would go into rooms and I would do all my homework and all my studying and I would do the heavy lifting. And then the minute I crossed over, into that room, I gave up my power. I felt like because they had money, they knew more than me, they had total control, whatever they said was gonna be the gospel. And Mm. it took me a while to start to realize they're not always gonna be, have the right idea and and response. They're not all gonna be smarter than me. And by the way, 99.9% of them were men Mm. and 98, 97, 98% of them were white men, which was fine. And I would have not even noticed that until like in today's world, mm. but I would go in and I would literally leave my, myself at the door. Mm. And that's a mistake. Like, no, I, I, so no, and I definitely, I mean, those are both two lessons to learn from. I think that, you know, definitely one's understandable how you make the mistake. And also too, I think learning from our stakes always or mistakes and how we can do better always makes us stronger. So I think those are both are great or great insight. Now, as we jump to the second question, which I always ask is if you're now talking to a startup or a small business, what would, or, you know, somebody that's just getting into a startup or small business, what would be the one piece of advice you'd give them? I think um, hearkening back to what I said in the beginning, you have a great idea. 
you can even have the funding for it. Mm. But you need to leave room in the execution of that model to have that variance, the human condition variance. Hmm. Um, you can do all, you can pull all the data, you can interpret all the data, you can look at all the comps, you can see all this stuff. And I will tell you, like, you can, you got to go with your gut. You've got to do gut checks all the time and you got to leave a little room for something to happen. And I don't mean be negative, like, it won't work that way. So let's pad. It's more like something amazing could happen in that little space that you leave for magic to happen, but also be prepared for, oh, like for me, when I started learning, like the response from filmmakers, from audience, whether it was using technology or the entitlement of being live on something and where's the money, like the education piece, the familiarity piece, the trust piece um, is a big one. And you have to leave room for that to be breathing and alive and pay attention to it. And then um, I would also just add as a little bonus be honest mm. have integrity don't do things that put you out of integrity with yourself it will come back to bite you no and i think that that's that's another great insight in the, or a great piece of advice in the sense that too often you're wanting to cut corners or you're wanting to do something that's in the gray area on the line and well it's just this one time and yet i think that having that integrity and being honest has a big impact that over oftentimes overlooked but is a, is a major thing well, as we wrap up, and just as a as a reminder to viewers, we, this episode we do have the bonus question talking a little bit about intellectual property and one and uh, your biggest question you have on it. But as we wrap up, before we uh, jump to the bonus question and wrap up the normal episode, um, if people want to reach out, they want to find out more, they want to support the films, you know, the community impact, they want to see the other uh, other things you have going on, they want to be an investor, they want to be a customer, they want to be an employee, they want to be your next best friend any or all of the above, what's the best way to connect up with you and find out more? Just go to IndieFlix.com. It's like Netflix, but IndieFlix, uh, F-L-I-X, I-N-D-I-E, not like Indie Cars, but I-N-D-I-E, F-L-I-X.com. And you can go in there. There's a lot of information. You can, sure, you can see the catalog of content you can watch, but I think going into like the education sector of the site, you will get to see our social impact films that we're out. And there's lots of opportunity to participate with us. I'm looking for new people to film for my next film, Race, which is a documentary about the impact of race and racism on our mental health and how we can raise the next generation to be anti-racist. So I am looking for support on that project. Hmm. Um, and for people who want to bring our other social impact temple films into their communities, schools, and organizations. Well, awesome. Well, I definitely encourage everybody to check out <laughs> indie or in, your indie films or indie flicks um, by going to indieflicks.com. Um, support support your causes, in the, and maybe even somebody will uh, apply and be uh, one of the people on your next movies. Who knows? Um, but with that, as we wrap up, thank you for coming on the podcast. For all of you that are now listeners, if you have uh, your own journey to tell, Feel free to go to inventiveguest.com, apply to be on the podcast. Also, if you're a listener, make sure to click subscribe so you get notifications as all our new awesome episodes come out and leave us a review so new people can find us. Last but not least, if you ever need help with your patents and trademarks, feel free to go to strategymeeting.com and we're always here to help. Thank you again, Sheila. It's been a pleasure. Now hold on and we'll do the bonus question for all of you listeners. If, you, if, if you're wrapping up, thanks for listening. And now we'll go over to the bonus question. So... Bonus question is a bit of a, you get a, to turn the table. So I usually pepper you with the questions and get a fi or pick your brain a bit and ask you about your journey. But now it, uh, with, uh, I do a lot of patents and trademarks, have Miller IP law. So 
flipping the tables a bit. What's your number one intellectual property question? So I have um, a program, a film, a product, which is um, one of our movies. It's about mental, it's a mental health film, which mm. has um, all these wraparound materials and a curriculum and a book. And mm. I have an opportunity to take it out into China mm. and I want to protect it. Yeah, I mean, China's China's always a bit of a mystery or a bit of a wild west in the sense that, you know, they are, I would say 20 years ago, they just, just didn't care about any intellectual property if they could. I remember, so I lived in Taiwan for a couple of years with a, doing a religious mission for my, my church. And I'll get to your question, but give me a side. So, you know, my parents, after I finished up my mission, we went and toured around to Taiwan for a bit. And we also went to China. Both places, I remember you go to what they have night markets are, and they would just have people that have strewn or movies were strewn on blankets, and it would be new movies that were still in the theater. You could buy them, and they were good quality, like they were good films. You could buy them, you know, they weren't legal, but you could buy them on the street, and they were selling them for five bucks. And so, you wanted to go watch a new movie, you just go buy it for five bucks on the movie. And uh, so that was kind of their approach. Now they now that as they've continued to enter the world stage, they are looking to try and be more respectful of intellectual property. And they're trying to actually recognize that, you know, if we're going to have people that are entering into our economy and wanting to sell things and be a bigger world player, we have to have some sort of structure in place. So with all of that as kind of a backdrop, you know, generally, same within the U.S. as in anywhere, movies are protected under copyrights, meaning if you're going to do it, anything that's creative, a creative work, whether it's books, movies, or posters, or anything else, you're going to file as a copyright. So you can do that in the U.S. If you do it in the U.S., it protects in the U.S. So, you know, anything that any of your customers, if you're wanting to make sure that they don't infringe your copyrights or that they're not ta they're taking on a big scale, you file a copyright. Really, that's your best bet in China. And they're, you know, they're, as far as that, you can enforce it. They're getting better, but they're the Wild West. It's still a bit of the Wild West, so it's better than nothing. But you're going to just probably, when you enter in China, just have to have the recognition that it's going to be less, or you're going to have less options to protect it than you would in the U.S. Does that make sense? Yeah, and there's no international kind of copyright? Um, it's not. Almost, and I can't think of an exception, everything really with intellectual property is going to be country by country. And so you have to file... And that's kind of the same thing, whether it's a trademark and branding. Let's say you want to, you know, you have a great brand in the U.S. and you want to go expand out. You have to file your trademarks in Europe or China or whatever. And so really everything is country by country because every country has a bit of their own laws. They don't have their own kind of fee structure. They have their own determination as to what's trademarkable or copyrightable or patent. So unfortunately, yeah. there isn't just an international one that you can file. And it is kind of just going on a country by country basis. Okay. All right. Well, with that, thank you for your question. It was fun a little bit to chat about intellectual property. If you, have, if you or any of the listeners have any more questions, feel free again to go to strategymeeting.com. We can dive in a bit deeper and always chat. But uh, for there, we'll wrap up the podcast. Thank you again, Sheila, and wish the next leg of your journey even better than the last. Thanks, Devin. You take care and take care, everybody. Mm -hmm.